We have concluded today, at the end of today, our final uh, part of our study of the book of Samuel. Today is about wrapping it up. If I was going to have a title for this sermon, it would be The Tale of Two Victory Parties. But more importantly, the plan has always been to take a look at the generational transition of leadership in Israel. Didn't know this week would be filled with the generational transition of Tim Keller, whom I think many know, Harry Reeder, who perhaps belongs more to the PCA than is known by the rest of the world, but also in the same week, a man by the name of Steve Smallman. He spent several decades as the senior pastor at McLean Presbyterian Church, which is a mothership church in the eastern half of our denomination. Harry, of course, pastored Birmingham, which is the largest most highly funded and supported and developed PCA church uh, in the country. We do not grieve as the world does. We grieve with a hope that lives. The same, I would imagine, would be true for the generational transition of having King David finally a hard-fought victories over victories over escapes and daring unbelievable miracles that God had performed. But I imagine as death squeezed its grip on David, there would have been a lot of grief and sorrow and sadness and joy that the God that David served, he would see face to face, which is the greatest of all hopes. One of the things we do as pastors when we're coming to a book with the magnitude and size of Samuel is we begin to lay out, oh Lord, what would you do through the study? We've spent more than two years going verse by verse by verse by verse through the book of Samuel. And before we set out on that journey, I'm a big believer in the leadership axiom of you consider how to start based on what the end will look like. You begin with the end in mind. I had one end in mind. It wouldn't be that we would know David it wouldn't be that we'd get excited about these great stories that we learned in our youth. My sole goal, my sole hope, my biggest prayer is that we would see truly the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. It's why as we've gone verse by verse, week by week, moment by moment, as often as I have been able to, I've used the name Yahweh. 
instead of just the Lord. Because I wanted to remind us of the moments of Moses' life and see them as interwoven and interconnected to the life of Samuel and David, Jonathan, so many others. So today we're going to look at this moment of transition from the kingship of David before it could even begin and the transition to Solomon as the king of Israel. Please listen from 1 Kings chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. This is the word of God. And his people should hear it and receive it as such. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it. Now therefore come and let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag, the Shumamite, Shunamite, was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, my Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord, by Yahweh, your God, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my Lord, the king, do not know it. He sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar, the priest, and Joab, the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant... He is not invited. And now, my lord, the king, the eyes of all of Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord, the king, sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord, the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he's gone down this day and sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, long live king Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he is not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord, the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him? Then King David answered, call Bathsheba to me. 
So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king, and the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity? As I swore to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord King David live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule. And bring him down to Gihong. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne. For he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May Yahweh, the God of my lord the king, say so. As Yahweh has been with my lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord king David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and Pelethites, down in Solomon on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we give so much thanks this week. Thank you for faithful men in every generation. Thank you for faithful women in every generation. Lord, we ask that you would continue the work of your holy calling and that you would use us to do it. Father, we pray for boldness. We pray for submission to you and your ways, to your very will. Father, we ask that your name would be hallowed above the names of Abraham and Moses and David, above the name of of Solomon, may the name of Jesus Christ be the central figure of all earthly action, of all earthly honor. Father, we ask for boldness. We ask for courage. We ask for your mighty, powerful presence. So speak. Your servants are here to listen. We do so because of the life, because of the death, because of the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we ask these things. And all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. 
As we begin today, we do so in the middle of a moment of great political intrigue. God, through David, has chosen Solomon, which, if we can remember, should be shocking to us. This is the firstborn son of David's adulteress, and he is to be the king of Israel. And we see laid out in this passage two different victory parties. Did you catch that? This is a tale of two victory parties. One is Adonijah's, David's other son from a different mother, whose name means the I am is Yahweh. The I am is the Lord. The I am is Lord. And who does he invite to his victory party? He invites the military leaders. He invites some of the religious leaders. And of course, he surrounds himself with political allies. I mean, how else do you steal a throne? You need the aid of the military. You need the aid of the righteous, the honorable, prestige of religious leaders. And then you need political muscle. You need political wisdom. You need the movers and the shakers. In more recent times, we would have said the nobles. I'm with William Wallace. What is it that makes a man noble? Adonijah thinks he can take the throne because David is old. David is weak. David is dying. And Israel has had, through the life of David, we've seen tremendous examples of division and disunity, pride and ego and, and stupidity. We've seen greed and lust that leads to horrific evil. It's at moments like this I begin to ask the question, how fragile is the kingdom of God? How fragile are the people of God? There are so many moments that we have seen where all of human history pivots completely differently if something goes different than what we have read. Solomon is being appointed king at the same time that Adonijah is usurping for the throne. Does that sound like a plot we've seen before? Apparently, it's always a game trying to be on the throne. So Nathan, the prophet, Bathsheba, the wife, form a plan that is dangerous. It's dangerous because the military leaders and the religious leaders and the political affiliates are all gathering for a contrary purpose. 
It's dangerous because they believe that God has a dynastic plan for Israel, that there's going to be a dynasty of kings that goes on forever, but that it will take place through Bathsheba's son. And all the other sons are not interested in that. It's also dangerous because you don't know how long David will live. You don't know whom he will tell. So they work and plan and, and, and put it together and it works, right? The prophet and the beloved wife come and say, there's this plot happening, it's unfolding under your nose that you probably don't know about because if David is dying in his bed, He's not going to have the same access to information that might be necessary because he is still the king, no matter what parties believe otherwise. So the prophet and the beloved wife come together and they listen to David's will. But that will was given to him, yes? This is God through David laying Solomon at the throne of his kingdom. Not just Israel, not just David's kingdom, but Yahweh's kingdom. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. It's his. Israel is his to do with as he sees fit. And so, in a moment of division... News becomes important. You, you might giggle at that thought. That the information given when we as a people are divided most becomes more important, not less important. So David, in dying breaths, lays out the plan. Here's the plan. Solomon, who's to take David's throne, is to go down to the Holy Spring just outside Jerusalem, the one at Giho. And there, because it's such a large place and a well-known place, gather as many as who will come. Do you see the distinction between David setting up the anointing for Solomon and Adonijah's party that's only for the elite? One is done in secret and one is done in public. David's brilliance continues. Do it in public. In fact, do it so excitingly. Place Solomon on my donkey. That everyone will know that this is my blessing. This is me saying, mine it's his. All that belongs to me is his. The throne and all others. Everything else. So ride David's mule and parade Solomon through all of Jerusalem that the biggest of crowds would know. That there would be many who say, I was there that day. I was in the room where it happened. I was in the place of significance and I saw the event with my own eyes. David is setting up Solomon's kingship through public witness. 
God's kingdom continues that way to this day, does it not? That the people bear witness to the truth. And then the crowds grow. But there's another thread that is here that is harder to see explicitly without really understanding the text. So listen to R.C. Sproul, who himself has recently gone also to see the God he spoke so eloquently of face to face. R.C. Sproul says this, when the right thing needs to be done, we need to do it all the while being careful to act wisely and to follow Scripture. Even while remembering that the success of God's kingdom does not depend finally on us. Right? The right thing needs to be done. We need to do it. But we remember that the right things will be wise from God's perspective, it will be foolish, Paul tells us, in the eyes of the populace, in the eyes of the outsider. We are to act wisely, and R.C. Sproul, of course, says that we are bound under and servants of the Scripture. There is no right thing to do that's in conflict with Scripture. Scripture itself is God's greatest medium to tell us what is true and what we should do. And so we remember that there's a part to play. We remember that God has a role for us. But we also remember that though it looks more fragile than we want to see, it's far more secure than we could ever believe. When I consider the faithfulness of Harry Reader and Tim Keller and Steve Smallman and R.C. Sproul, I see them living life under a Latin creed. Corum Deo. C-O-R-A-M. D-E-O, Corum Deo. The idea in church history of Corum Deo, of this idea of the face of God, Corum Deo, it means that we live our lives in the presence of and before the face of God. That in all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we want, we do so before him. And for some of us, that creates a shrinking. If you here live all of your life before the face of God and your heart shrinks and your shoulders drop and your chin hits your chest and you're filled with shame, dying to wipe things that aren't there on your forehead, then you should know that you are in shame. That you are in a state of shame because of past sin, because of current guilt, because of idealized rebellion. Coram Deo 
is that you live your whole life before the face of God. So I'll give you three ways to think about this. One, you live your entire life in the presence of God. He's everywhere. The psalmists love this idea, do they not? Where can you go to escape? There's no mountain high enough or sea deep enough to hide you from the eye of God. So we live constantly and joyfully our entire life in the presence of God. That's one. Two, we live under the authority of God. We are not our own masters. We live under the authority of God. And third, we live unto the glory of God. The Lord taught us this. At the beginning of his prayer, did he not? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, famous, and honored be your name. To live, Coram Dio, is to live your life, your whole life, not part of it, not a piece of it, but all of it. In the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. This requires intentionality. If I see the great men who have influenced my life and my thinking, my choosing and my loving, I see their intentionality. The intentionality of daily life, the intentionality of relationships, cultivated over many years of habits of drawing near to God through prayer and scripture and devotional songs and more. We very rarely see the benefits the first time we do something. Or the fifth, or even sometimes the 500th. There are things that God commands that he also provides that will leave us to live before the gaze of God in joy. In joy. How many times do you hear these thoughts of living before the face of God, shoulders down, chin down, eyes awkward and scattered? You are living like Peter face down in the floppy boat of fish in the presence of Almighty God, thinking that God needs to go. Instead of thinking, my shame must be given to that God who stands before me, Coram Deo intentionally and joyously living before the gaze of God. If all your punishments are gone, if all your punishments are gone, why are your shoulders down? Why is your chin tucked? Boxers learn to tuck their chin. Do you know why? So they don't get knocked out. So the nerve in your jaw is not activated. They keep their chin down because they're expecting to be hit. I think many of us live our life in Christ, chin tucked, waiting for God to smack us around again. And if that's true of you, 
I have the best news you'll ever be given. I got the best news that you could ever imagine. You have more to see in the cross of Christ. He was beaten by the wrath of God. He was struck with our sin and bears on his body the punishment that we deserve. Your instinct is right. Your action is wrong. The instinct of God is holy and other and transcendent and greater and better. And I am unworthy. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't tuck our chins. It should raise our voices. We should be a people who speak the glorious grace of God into the lives of the people around us, our friends, our coworkers, our classmates. The Lord Almighty lives. And I know his stories. And he invites me to lift my chin, to lift my hands, to lift my voice to his praise and glory. Why do we end every church service singing the doxology and giving a good word that we would remember the ultimate and highest of truths that he is worthy and he delights to bless. If you hear the words live your life before the face of God, lift up your hearts and carry your shame into this room. How many people carry burdens and guilt and shame and drop them at the doors of church week after week after week, unwilling to bring that shame in here for fear of man's judgment? How much greater to know God's judgment has been given. Given to Christ who does not deserve it. That we could be the recipient of that almighty grace. One of the things that overwhelms me when I see in this chapter, this transition of David to Solomon, I see the fragility. And I have to remember the truth of his sovereignty. But I also see an overwhelming truth that David didn't let the sins of his past cling to him. He didn't let the sins of his interactions with Bathsheba and her former husband Uriah the Hittite. He did not let that past sin cling to him in such a way as to prevent him from doing the right thing. If Solomon is king, everyone will ask about his mother, about his relationship with his former king. He is the son of an adulteress because he is the son of the adulterous king. Do not put more on her than you are willing to put on him. Glorious King David, yes, sinfully wretched 
King David. Yes. But David knows what we must remember. That there is atonement for sin if we but come, if we but yield. It is important for us to say that God unilaterally loves us. That he unconditionally loves us. But he uniconditionally forgives us. Don't run. Hang on. There's one condition to be in right standing with God, is there not? There's one condition that must be met for you to stand in the presence of a holy God forever. And that condition is faith in Christ. It's a repentant faith. It's a saving faith. You must be united to Christ to have eternal forgiveness before the face of God. But if, if you have been given repentant faith, he has one countenance towards you. Free your shoulders. Free your burdens. Not by pretending they don't exist and leaving them in the parking lot. Bring them here and kneel before the throne of grace. Because greater than David's throne, greater than Solomon's throne, is the very true and real heavenly throne of which one day we will stand before. Tim has been there. Harry has seen it with his own eyes. Steve, a man of incredible piety. A man whose name will be forgotten very quickly. Laid a foundation for world harvest. Has been a significant part of Jack Miller's legacy. R.C. Sproul, how many of you Oh, a debt of gratitude to God for the pen and the voice he used. For the words he spoke and wrote. David doesn't let the sins of his past cling to him in such a way that it prevents him from doing the right thing. It is James 4.17 that says, So whoever knows the right thing to do, and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Literally yesterday afternoon, my family was gathered on our kitchen table and we were thinking about God's word together and praying with one another. And we talked fairly extensively about the difference between sins of commission when you cross the line when you do what you're not supposed to do and also sins of omission where you didn't do what you were supposed to do. This is why we've inherited ancient prayers from the early church that remind us to confess, Lord, forgive us for what we have done and for what we have left undone. Omission and commission. If you know what the right thing to do is and you fail to do it, it is sin. Well, where does sin belong? At the cross. 
on his shoulders. Born out in his flesh. Most of us fear punishment. And so we become practical in how we live. Most of us fear the punishment of our parents for a time, and then we fear a different kind of punishment. We fear the punishment upon our reputation. Is David's reputation marred further because Solomon will be king? It could be, but it's still the right thing. It's still the right thing. So he does what is right, (laughs) wait for it, this time. And Solomon will do things that are right. And Solomon will do things that make his dad look like a small-time sinner. But they have the same Savior. It doesn't really matter how big the pile of your sin is. It doesn't really matter how big the pile of your righteous works is. Put those things bundled together and run to Christ. Leave that stuff right where it is because it doesn't belong to you anymore. Go to the bosom of Christ. When I think about this procession and when I think about what it means that Solomon is going to be anointed and, and made king, declared king, that David is still alive as Solomon is made king. The torch literally, physically passed from one to the other. Does that preserve the kingdom of God? Trick question, pastor. Yes and no. It does because it's his will, and it doesn't because he might have had a different will. But his will is always trustworthy, always right. Many of us see what it means to live in the face of God, live before the glorious face of God, the glorious and joyful countenance of God in such a way that we fear punishment. Are you kidding me? How often are Christians charged as hypocrites? I dare you to put that charge on me. I dare you to put that charge on me. Do you know why? I'll be the first to tell you my sin. And if you show me my sin, I'll be right there with you on my knees, wanting transformation, restoration, renewal. And if I do that imperfectly, hound me, love me, speak, grab, hold, use duct tape if necessary. Because I want to live before the face of God in all that I do and all that I say. So there is a question that comes, and I learned this question from Harry Reader. That to live core diem is to ask the question, what is the next faithful thing I can do? How many times have you been in the pit trying to find the ladder, trying to find the rope? trying to find the aid to get out of that pit, to find the palace that was promised to you in a place where even water goes away. It can be really hard to do the right thing. Ask David. 
Study the book of Samuel. It can be really, really, really hard to do the right thing, but failing to do the right thing because of potentially negative consequences doesn't absolve us of the guilt if we fail to act. Tim Keller once said, it's always the right time to obey the Lord. Yeah? <laughs> it is always the right time to obey the Lord. There's no higher purpose than to offer our lives as a living sacrifice to God. The animals we slaughtered in the Old Testament, they get sliced and diced and grilled. We get placed on the hot coals of life. And we feel the heat and the burn. And we fear. And we despair. And we sorrow. And the Lord is with us all the way through. The lie in the church today could well be described as the Christian life should be smooth and clean and easy. It's a scheme of hell. In the war of hell and heaven. It can be really hard to do the right thing, but it's always the right time to obey the Lord. Because otherwise, we live lives of inconsistency and disunity and disharmony and confusion and conflict, contradiction and even chaos. It's always the right time to obey the Lord. Quorum Deo means that we live humbly before God and against defiance. That all of life is lived. All that is done is done as to the Lord. We live before the face of God who is himself our Savior. What sin is greater than the power of the cross? What force greater than the Holy Spirit of God? And I ask you to compare the two parties in this text. Zadok has the henchmen and the elite all gathered around toasting one another. All drinking wine to the idea that he has won. But he hasn't. Has he? Has he won? He has not. Adonijah's party ends in verses 49 and 50. Turn there. In verses 49 and 50, Adonijah hears the uproar of the other party, Solomon's parade, coming, much like his father, I imagine, with trumpet and lyre and drum and dance. They make such a racket that Adonijah's party is interrupted. Their victory suddenly insecure. So they get word, the news is powerful and it comes. And upon hearing what David has done in the offer of mule and the sending of the high priest 
and all the minions and the crowds that had gathered Adonijah's audience begins to recede and dissipate. Listen to verse 49. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled. They trembled and they rose. Each went his own way. The scattering of the schemes of the enemies of God. And Adonijah is left. Verse 50. The party is literally over. Adonijah fears Solomon. So he arose and he went and he took held of the horns of the altar of God. In other words, the party disbanded for fear of treason and he fleed to the altar for safety. One commentator said it this way. I think I'll always remember this. Adonijah's, quote, cup of joy, close quote, turned sour while it was still in his hand. You are not king of your lives. You are not king of this earth. You are a royal priesthood. You are charged and equipped ambassadors to the king. And the king and all those who worship him are your friends and your brothers and sisters, all with the same glory, all with the same benefits. Listen to the description in verse 40 of the party God is throwing in the kingship of Solomon. Listen to these words. Be in the crowd in your imagination. And all the people are going from where he was anointed up after him. And they are playing on pipes. We need pipes, y'all. And they're rejoicing with great joy. Their great joy is so intense and so marvelous that it literally affected and split the ground upon which they walked. Solomon's having a party so awesome, it shook the ground beneath their feet. You've heard me say it. And I really mean it. Christians should throw the best parties. We should throw the best parties. Our parties should be better than everybody else's party. But I have not yet partied in the joy of worship to the degree that it split the ground. And fear not, we have a master mason in our mix. If the ground gets rumbly, he will know what we should do. Compare the two parties. Which one do you want to attend? The one filled with promise and possibilities? Or the one of your own conniving usurping? You do not have the best plan for your life. God does. And it's not hidden. It's spoken. And given. So I ask, is Israel living happily ever after? Come on, y'all. Is, is Israel, this is not Disney. 
Is Israel living happily ever after? The sins of the past affect us no more? Or are they a rock that has been cut from a place in which it's been hewn? As Isaiah 51 tells us, look to the place where you came from. Look to what formed you and fashioned you and find yourself aligned there. Coram Deo, humbly before God, all of our life is lived. All that is done is done unto the Lord. We live before the face and countenance of God our Savior. But the story is not happily ever after. Yet. Yet. Is there a day coming? Yeah, Tim and Steve and Harry, they're immersed in it right now. There is a happily ever after, but it comes through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation, and return of Jesus, our Lord, our Master, our King of the dynasty of David in the house of Israel that lives forever. So at the end of my sermons, many times in the last two and a half years, I have asked the question, what is the theological witness of the book of Samuel? Are you ready? What is the theological witness of the book of Samuel? You studied it, you tell me. You tell me, not here, not right now. I kid you not, I want a video of your answer. I want an email of your answer. And don't think about what it should have been. Answer the question, what is the theological witness of the book of Samuel in your life, in your heart? as lived and studied and immersed as we have been in the last few years, what is Book of Samuel telling us? For a long time, we have been listening to the whispers of Christ in the Old Testament. He's there, but it's a whisper. I've been filled with questions. Do you see it? Can you hear it? Do you see? Can you behold the footprints that lead to the cross? The need for the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sin. Have you seen and heard? Our job is to inspect the scripture to be able to explain them and to see that explanation integrate in our life and to lead us in adoration. Inspect, explain, integrate, adore. Because our greatest and most lasting joys are found in our union with Christ. We're going to study the book of Galatians next. We're going to study Paul studying the Old Testament, and we're going to zero in on that tiny little mustard seed, tiny little mustard seed of what is the gospel in hopes that it will grow into a tree so large and strong that it shapes the garden 
that grows around it. We're going to Galatians, y'all. Woo? Woo? You guys should be more excited about Galatians. I'm just telling you right now, y'all need to pray that the Lord would open your eyes, that he would pull whatever plugs and wax are in your ears, that your heart would receive the truth of the purity and the power of the gospel. I hope you have seen Yahweh. I hope you have seen his mercy and his fury, his power and his goodness, his wisdom. But most of all, I hope you have seen his love, his self-sacrificing and patient, long-standing, enduring, hesed way. Amen? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are overjoyed at your goodness, overjoyed at your power and wisdom, and we ask that we would throw the greatest parties. Father, we ask that your love would be so poured out on us individually and as families that the, the very ground beneath our feet would bear the mark of our joy in your kingship. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that those who are here who are chin tucked in shame, that you would lift their eyes to the mountains from where their help comes. That they would open their hearts to receive the light and sunshiny ray of a cleansing wash that leads our voices to sing. Come and hear our praise. Come and receive our joy and gladness in song and instrument in the very voices you have given us to praise you. Lord, may the rocks not cry out because we delight to do so. Use us, O oh Lord. Make us men and women who live Coram Deo. May we live before your face in such a way that your presence is goodness your authority is freedom, and your glory, our highest honor to see and embrace. Come, O oh Lord, rock us in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree.